0: Thank you so much for that warm welcome. And uh, I want to start by telling you uh, a story about two young boys in Kerala, South India, many years ago. These boys were in a remote village. The nearest school was six kilometers away. The older brother got a place at the school, the younger brother didn't. The younger brother would follow his older brother for six kilometres. The older brother would go into the school. The younger brother would sit outside his brother's classroom window. And his older brother would pass the textbooks through the window to his younger brother. That is the only way this young boy could start to learn. He eventually did get into school, and he was very clever. He did so well that he got a scholarship to the London School of Economics. It took his family one year to raise the money just for his clothing and travel to get to London to attend the LSE. And he did so well at the LSE, he got into the Indian Foreign Service, which is very difficult to get into, a country of 1.3 billion people, but to this day there are less than 1,000 members of the Indian Foreign Service, only one. Time. He rose to becoming an ambassador and the head of the Foreign Service, and then he became the first Dalit. We used to call them untouchables. First Dalit president of India, President and, and I had the privilege to know him. Now I tell you that story because it shows two things: one, that anyone can get from anywhere to anywhere in life, and secondly, how important education is that powered this individual to where he got to. And I got to know his daughter, Chitra, who herself became an ambassador and retired from the foreign service as the Indian ambassador to Switzerland. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to Glenn and to Ben. Where's Ben? Ben's over there. Um, For all you've done to set up our campus, I came to see this with Dr. Mohamed Abdullah. Thank you for being here. Sir, thank you for your help to you and your team. And since we first met, about this whole project and the journey we've been through, and it has not been easy, but it has been made possible thanks to your support and your team's support. And I've seen it first, and I cannot thank you enough. And you visited our university as well in Birmingham, where we've been privileged to host you. And then to see this building, which you yourself showed me around when it was an empty shell, and now to see what Glenn and Ben and your team have done. And this is only our temporary campus, and you've done a phenomenal job, I'm very grateful. And Professor Tariq Ali, where's Tariq sitting? Here we are, Tariq, our Pro Vice Chancellor from the University of Birmingham, who's played an instrumental role. Thank you for all your support as well. And um, we also have Mr. and Mrs. Desanya, the head of my Zoroastrian Parsi community here, and she does great work for our our community. Thank you. you. So, my father's father, the late Brigadier Villamoria, the First World War, 1914 to 1918 one million Indians served in that war they were all volunteers and do you know they were not allowed to become officers and when I say Indians by the way I'm talking about what is today India, Pakistan and Bangladesh and of course Nepal the Gurkhas one million served and they were not allowed to be officers the only officers were the ones who were the medics, the doctors, they were allowed to become officers. So after the First World War, which would not have been a victory had these one million not fought, the British decided to allow eight Indians per course at Sandhurst to become officers. And hugely competitive exam, my grandfather was one of them. And while he was a student in 1930, 31 uh, at Sandhurst, uh, he met another young Indian student, and also Zoroastrian Parsi, called Jamshivitalia, who was at Birmingham University studying commerce. And he, without my great grandfather knowing, learned how to fly. And after graduating, didn't go and join the family business, he joined the Royal Indian Air Force as a pilot, and served all the way through to the end of the Second World War. When these two young men met as students in England, Little did they realize that they would later be in-laws, both my grandfathers. And since then, my mother went to Birmingham University. Her brother did his PhD at Birmingham University. I went to university in Britain. And now two of my children, one has graduated from British University, one is at a British university, and one, all being well, will join a British university next year. So it's four generations. This is the power of our universities. And when I became chancellor Glenn said five, five years ago, I'm very fortunate I've just been reappointed for another five years, but that's it. You're not allowed to do more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been a great privilege. But when I actually was there for my installation at the University of Birmingham in the Bramman Auditorium, and of course it commemorates Elgar, the famous composer, who was the first professor of music at Birmingham. And on the stage as I was being installed as, as Chancellor, I looked up into the sky. I also thought, when I was on the committee that put up the statue of Mahatma Gandhi in Parliament Square, one of my biggest contributions to that committee was to make sure and insisting that my friend Gopal Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi's grandson, would attend the ceremony and I insisted that he spoke at the ceremony. There was a big debate. The prime minister was going to speak. The Indian finance minister was going to speak. So and so. I said, well, whatever happens, he's got to speak and make sure he speaks last. And it was the best speech of the whole of that inauguration of that statue. And every day I go past Parliament Square, I see people in front of Mahatma Gandhi's statue. This is 150th anniversary, birth anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi this month, this year. And what Gopal Gandhi did was he looked up in the sky and he spoke to his grandfather. And it was amazing. the most amazing speech I'll never forget all my life. And I looked up in the sky and I said to my grandfather, I finally made it to Birmingham as chancellor. (laughs) And it's been an enormous, enormous privilege. Now Birmingham was um, founded in 1900. It was the first university in Britain to offer business and commerce as a subject to study. No one had done that before then. Even Harvard Business School, which I have been privileged to attend for executive education, I'm an alumnus, only started in 1908. So Birmingham beat Harvard to it. And it's a civic university, which I'll come to later and explain that whole concept. And we have the Birmingham Business School, and to this day I sit on the advisory board of the Birmingham Business School. Cambridge University, of which I'm a graduate, only started its business school in 1990. The same year I started Cobra Beer, so exactly the same time. But so we were ahead of the game where Birmingham is concerned. And talking about Cambridge University, the vice chancellor of Cambridge every year makes an annual address. Last year, he said in his annual address, He spoke about a shift in how society understands the role of higher education. And he he says that universities have fallen short in demonstrating the value societal, economic, cultural, civic our institutions can offer. And the end result has been a growing mistrust of universities and suspicion of our motivations. Even Cambridge, with its distinguished history and exceptional record of achievement, has not been immune to this disquiet. That's Cambridge, UK. You go across the Atlantic to the other Cambridge, the newer Cambridge, and Harvard. And Larry Bacow, Lawrence Bacow, in the same month, within days of each other, Harvard copies Cambridge, so that's mm-hmm. quite expected. Um, made his annual address. And uh, John Harvard, by the way, went to Cambridge and then... That, that's how we found it. Um, he said, and they did not corroborate, this is independently two leaders of two of the top universities in the world. Lawrence Backow said, For the first time in my lifetime, people are asking whether or not colleges and universities are worthy of public support. Isn't that amazing? For the first time in my lifetime, people are expressing doubts about whether colleges and universities are even good for the nation. These questions force us to ask, what does higher education really contribute to national life? And then he spoke of his predecessor, Drew Faust, who was president of Harvard, saying how she has often wished for Harvard that it be as good as it is great. To me, the goodness of Harvard and all of our universities lies in three essential values we we represent. Truth, or as they say at Harvard Veritas, excellence, and opportunity. Truth, excellence, and opportunity. And it is precisely because we find ourselves in this post-factual world that strong colleges and universities are essential. And he goes on to say, and I quote him, it's not enough that we represent the very best of society in terms of intellectual achievement, freedom to express and explore, and openness to extraordinary potential and all who possess it. We must defend the essential role of higher education in the life of our nation and the broader world, and we must reach outwards even beyond that because we have a responsibility to use the immense resources entrusted to us, our assets, our ideas, and people to address difficult problems and painful divisions. We have a responsibility as well, in his case, to help America remember its own essential goodness, the kindness, decency, and integrity of our founding principles, as well as the kindness, decency, and integrity of those people who fought throughout our history to ensure that these principles apply equally to all. It is up to us to leave our country and our world a better place tomorrow than it is today. That is where true greatness lies spurring all of us to summit mountains we never imagined we could climb. And he says that today I'm inspired by the beauty of our mission, our history and our values, by the power of our ambition, talent and goodwill, and by the infinite possibilities before us to use our strengths to help humanity as a whole to ascend. I mean, this is what it's all about. This is so powerful. And I go back to Professor Stephen too concluding his remarks at Cambridge a few days before. And he said, on June the 15th of this year, in a service of thanksgiving for his life and achievements, Professor Stephen Hawking's ashes were buried in Westminster Abbey. And by the way, I pass Westminster Abbey every day because it's right opposite the House of Parliament. What is mortal of Professor Hawking was laid to rest between the remains of Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin. The roll calls of scientists whose remains are also interred at the Abbey, include Dirac, Rutherford, Thomson. was a vivid illustration of the place that our university scholars and researchers have in this country's history, and the history of knowledge more generally. And he said to be taking part in the ceremony was a humbling reminder of the trust placed in our generation to carry forward this great university's history of discovery and innovation. <coughs> and he then said, now again, uncorroborated, our, he wants our university to be an unstoppable, unapologetic force for knowledge and understanding, for more inclusive community, and for the betterment of our shared world. And as US President Theodore Roosevelt hit the nail on the head, when speaking about leadership, he said, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Now at Birmingham, our alumni around the world, how many of you are currently studying at the University of Birmingham? Can I see a show of hands? Yeah, a few of you care? You're gonna be alumni, you will be part of our community forever. 341,000 is the number of Birmingham alumni around the world. And by the way, I think that's something like only six or seven countries in the whole world that does not have a Birmingham alumnus there. Um, Glenn mentioned that I've just become vice president of the Confederation of British Industry, the uh, apex business body in the UK, and all being well, will be president next year. And if you think about it, they said, what are are you going to do, Karen Billamoria? You're the first person to be president of the CBI who's not of the traditional mode of a FTSE 100 chairman. You're the first entrepreneur to become president of the CBI. You're the first member of any ethnic minority, let alone an Indian, to become president of the CBI. What are you going to do that's different? What are your priorities? So I said, okay. My priority is I want to change this perception that CBI is only about big business. It actually speaks for 190,000 businesses. I want to make sure but the CBI promotes entrepreneurship, because if there is any success of any economy of any country, it's entrepreneurship that powers it ahead. And I also want to make sure that we focus on innovation. <coughs> so I want to ask you all a question. There is no right or wrong answer here, please. This is not a test. This is just I'm asking a question. Be true to yourselves and to me. How many of you think you're creative? If you think you're creative, put your hand up. If you think you're not creative, keep your hands down. So can I just see a show of hands of anyone who thinks they're creative? Just keep them up or down, please. One second. Thank you very much. Thank you. So normally when I ask this question around the world, it's just under half the hands that go up. This time it's a little more. Uh, I was, as a child, if you go and visit my mother who's 83 years old, I spoke to her on, way, on my way here, saying, I'm going to be speaking at a Birmingham University event. She was thrilled. Um, she's a very proud alumna. And you could, she's got a cabinet, a glass cabinet that's probably the length of that wall, full of all the china and pottery that she's collected over the year, her treasures. And in amongst that, there is a small, it's about this big, pottery angel. It's the ugliest angel you've seen in your life, made by me <laughs> when I was a boy. And it's there to remind her and me that I was told as a child, you are not creative. You're good at your academics, keep going, you should do well, but you're not creative. I was forced to learn the piano. I passed grade one. (laughs) Please give up. (laughs) Spare us. You're tone deaf. You're not creative. So I went through my whole education. I went through all the way through my degrees, university, being told and believing I was not creative. And it's only when I started Cobra Beer, when I started my business, that I realized the most important skill of an entrepreneur is the ability to be creative. And I realized that I'm actually very, very creative. And it has been suppressed throughout my youth and my childhood. What a waste. If we could encourage our children (coughs) from a school age to be creative and to unleash that creative potential. Those of you who didn't put your hands up, believe you me, every one of us has the ability to be creative. It's a question of unleashing it. Whatever you do in life, it makes a huge difference, and I think that should be a priority. And I think also with the CBI, I said one of my priorities, I'm fortunate to be a university chancellor. I was the youngest university chancellor in the country when I was a chancellor at the University of West London for five years from 2005 to 2010. I believe universities and business need to work far closer together than they are. That's another priority of mine. And you can see this, the University of Birmingham, every two years, the Queen gives a Queen award to 21 universities, 21 higher and further education institutions. And Birmingham, I think it is the third or the fourth time we've won one of these Queen's awards. And it's given to a particular department for work that they've done And this time, our department that won it was our Railways Department. We have one of the leading Railways Departments in the world. We're the only university in the United Kingdom that has its own railway station. We're just about to build a brand new station. It looks very, very impressive. And our Railway Department has just been announced. When we were, when Prince Charles came around, when the awards were being given out in Buckingham Palace, we were talking, and I said, Your Royal Highness, we have developed a hydrogen train. We've actually developed a model, a working model for hydrogen powered trains. And he said, Could the Royal Train be hydrogen powered? And that's not a joke anymore. It possibly could be. So, that power of what we do, which can be translated, and today with climate change being the number one challenge, it's universities that are going to help to power that. When it comes to working with universities, I've, I was an international student the students here are international students. A country's got to make it friendly for international students to come and work, be able to study and work. I fought in 2007-2008 for the British government to introduce a two-year post-graduation work visa for all international students. The government listened, it was brought in in 2008. In 2012, unfortunately, Prime Minister Theresa May, who was then Home Secretary, removed it in 2012. For seven years, it was taken away, and the number of international students, we've done research, the government itself shows research that the number one reason international students did not choose the UK as the number one choice was the lack of post-graduation work opportunities. And I kept on, I chaired the World Party Parliamentary Group on international students, I head the international students in the UK, UKISA, 450,000 international students, including 130,000 from the European Union, come on, please, bring this back in, bring this back in. And Theresa May stepped down as Prime Minister this summer, and Boris Johnson and his team have brought back the two-year post-graduation work visa for all international students. And I think that's wonderful. It gives them the opportunity to work afterwards, gives them the opportunity to help pay for their education, and also builds the bridges, the generation-long bridges, even more. Do you know that at any one time there are more world leaders educated from two countries than any other by far. And by the way, they take turns. Last year, it was the UK. More world leaders educated in UK universities than any other country. This year, it's America. And I think it's by one or two, 52 and 51, or something like that. So it's very, very powerful. The soft power of international students is really, really important. And if I were to summarize, what are the three things that universities really do Number one, they make better people of our students from the time they come in and the time they leave. Better people. Better people to what they learn, better people to what they experience, better people to the friends they make, better people all around. Whether it's one year, three years, however long they spend. Number one priority. Number two, what universities do is that they have an impact on their local community. Glenn spoke of this. They have an impact on their regional community, Mm -hmm. and they have an impact on the national economy and community. And the third thing that universities do is that they have an impact globally. At the University of Birmingham, we commission regularly an impact report that is independently prepared of the social... Economic and cultural impact of the university. You know, it's phenomenal, and Glynn mentioned one or two of these. Almost one in 50 jobs in Birmingham depend on the university. The teaching alone contributes 1.34 billion to the economy. Our international students at Birmingham contribute 160 million pounds to the economy, and our research and knowledge transfer activity is worth almost 1 billion pounds. And in total, we contribute 3.5 billion pounds to the UK economy every year one university the fourth largest university in the UK one university 3.5 billion and the impact of the university's spending and that of our students is 1.09 billion per year and on a like-for-like basis our economic impact has grown by 59% in 10 years Now, what would an economy of a country give to have a growth rate of that 59% in 10 years? We employed, Glenn mentioned this, 7,200 staff. We sustained 15,500 jobs in the region. And in our last fundraising campaign, our donors donated almost 200 million pounds. We have 34,000 students, 100,000 online learners. We develop entrepreneurs. We're developing the region's healthcare sector, and 87.5% of our students graduate level jobs for further education. Within six months, they get amazing jobs, so we're very good in terms of employment. And every 1 million invested in our research generates an extra 12 million to the economy. And do you know British universities are so phenomenal? Britain makes up just 1% of the world's population, and we produce... 16% 16% of the leading research papers around the world. That's how good our universities are. And Birmingham, if you see along one of the walls over here, eleven Nobel Prize winners. In fact, do you know it's not, people say which university's got the most Nobel Prizes in the world? And people would start immediately will think of American universities. It's not. It's Cambridge University, British University that has 117 Nobel Prizes. The British universities are outstanding. At Birmingham, our innovations, 365 patents are held by the university. That's phenomenal, 365 patents. Many spin-outs, 30 active spin-outs. We're a global university. Um, Eight, now here's a statistic, eight additional international undergraduate students at Birmingham add £1 million to the economy. Eight undergraduates, £1 million to the economy. International students in total in the UK bring in 26 billion pounds to our economy every year. That's three times the contribution we make to the European Union every year, to put it into context. Um, We have the alumni, as I mentioned, and our global footprint includes offices that we have in India, China, Brazil, Africa, and Europe, and of course now our campus over here. So if you think about it, our total impact, whether it's teaching and learning, exports, research, direct and indirect. 3.5 3.5 billion pounds a year for the economy. Now, investment. big investment that we're making is our campus over here, which, all being well, will be ready in two years' time for 4,500 students. In the UK, if you come to Birmingham, and Mr. Geller, next time you're in Birmingham, you'll see more new things. We've, since your last visit, we've opened up the Green Heart whole of the area in the middle has been opened up. Our new library, £50 million pound library, £60 million pound library, is one of the most modern university libraries in the world. I managed to get Her Royal Highness Princess and the Princess Royal, a sportswoman herself, to come and open our new sports centre, which costs £55 million pounds and has a 50-metre swimming pool, amongst other things. The Commonwealth Games coming up in 2022, Birmingham will be hosting the university. It's held in Birmingham, the university is hosting squash and hockey, and of course other aspects of the Commonwealth Games. 47 million pounds of new student residences, a 60 million pound high-temperature research centre, and I could go on. And then the social and cultural impact. More than a quarter of a million people attended public events at the university. Our academics gave over 2,000 days supporting cultural activities. We have three museums. We have our own botanical gardens. The Barber Institute of Arts is one of the four top university museums in the UK. and. 6,000 of our students volunteer at their time. One of my highlights of my year as is I attend the Guild Awards. I don't know if Glenn or Ben, have you ever attended the Guild mm-hmm. you have, Tariq? I don't know if they, you This event is in our great hall. What, Doctor, you have seen the, our great hall. Packed. All students, except a few of us, are privileged to attend. For the students, by the students. And then you see these students who are studying a variety of subjects, what they're capable of. Dancing, music, jazz, rock, pop, a cappella groups. Most importantly, they celebrate the community contribution that they've been making to the community, volunteering that they do. When you hear what they do, you are just inspired of what our students do beyond what they're asked to do, going the extra mile. And um, So, in general, universities are wealth creators. Indirectly, they support to their services and infrastructure, to their graduates, they contribute the their skills, they provide us with opportunity, they transform young lives, they're champions of tolerance, they're blind to the differences of ethnicity, gender and economic background. One third of our students at Birmingham come from families that have had no one who's ever gone to university in their families before. One-third. That is trans- and this is Russell Group University, the Ivy League of Britain. That's how much we give opportunity. And they have a proud tradition of championing people of determination. Through their research, they help to drive our understanding of the world we live in. They seek to tackle global challenges, whether it's poverty, inequality, health, economic growth, climate change. We're conveners. We bring people together to discuss the challenges they face, the viability of solutions. And we're global connectors. We're pivotal in the regions that we're based in, and we draw in people from around the world. And we send our people out around the world. This campus will have, already has, our faculty coming across. Our students from here will be able to go and study at the University of Birmingham as well. And the Dubai campus, in spe- in specifically, our ambition is to translate the University of Birmingham's civic tradition to Dubai, to the UAE, and the Gulf region and that in building our mission and influence locally, we go back to our beginnings as we address being relevant to the needs of the place where we're based, Dubai, the UAE, and the Gulf region. It is our strategy to build a full ecosystem university working in collaboration with the government. And once again, I thank Dr. Abdullah, thank you for what you've done for us, and industry. And hugely important to build our research contribution and knowledge transfer capability through phase one our current building and activity will build a platform for that longer-term success as we build towards our new campus opening, as I've said in 2021, for 4,500 students. The new campus will be a world-class facility, but also a statement of our long-term mission and ambition. Our lease agreement with Tech is for over 30 years – this is long-term, this is not something – we're here for the long term – to contribute to the higher education economic landscape of Dubai and the UAE for many years. Contributing to the development ambitions of Dubai and the UAE across the 2021, 2030, and 2071 plans will be important. I mean, these are long-term plans, 2071. And it's important that in doing this, the university also seeks to collaborate not only with the government in its industry, but with other institutions. And here's an important point. The University of Birmingham in Dubai is 100% owned and operated by the University of Birmingham. And I'd like to, once again, Thank Mohammed Abdullah and your team for giving us the confidence to do that and the ability to do that. 100%, we're doing it ourselves in partnership with the government. Now, 10 days ago, I was at Kensington Palace and we were launching a new campaign. Campaign Birmingham in Action. Now, here's the beauty of creativity Birmingham's been around for nine, one, 119 years. If you look at the Birmingham, it has two letters in it, IN. And our whole campaign is Birmingham IN Action, Birmingham IN the Future, Birmingham IN. Nobody thought of that in 119 years, and it's brilliant branding when you see Birmingham IN Action, with the letters IN highlighted. So there's no end to creativity, that campaign is a huge campaign, double the ambition of our previous campaign, we raised £200 million, with one million hours of volunteering as a target. No other university in the world has a target for a fundraising campaign to have (coughs) a million hours of volunteering as part of that campaign. Now, the examples of how universities can transform is phenomenal. One of the people I've worked with at Cambridge University is Professor Sir Greg Winter. Professor Greg Winter was Master of Trinity College, Cambridge and just won the Nobel Prize last year. He is such a brilliant man that his discoveries underpin six Mm -hmm. of the ten best-selling drugs in the world, proof that we not only make great discoveries, but we place them in the hands of society. So these Nobel Prizes are not just prizes. They change people's lives. And one individual producing six out of ten best-selling drugs in the world and I was with Andreas um, Schleicher who's the director of the OECD the director of education at the OECD education and skills and he says that learning is about four things one, knowledge obvious two, skills also obvious two other not so obvious learning is not just about knowledge and skills, it's also about attitudes And values. And when we hire people at Cobra Beer, our first mantra is this. We hire for will rather than skill. Obviously, both would be better, but the will is more important. The attitude is more important. And the other important, the values, the word integrity. Okay, if I just ask, please could two or three of you just put your hand up and tell me what you think the word integrity means. Anyone would like to have a go? Put your hand up and tell me. What does integrity mean? Yes. United. 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 Yeah. Okay. United. Yes. Any. Any other. Any other. Yes. You stand for something you believe in. Stand for something. You stand for something you believe in. Okay. Yes. Sincere and honest. Sincere, Sincere. and honest. Terrific. Okay. We could carry on. Don't change depending on external factors. Don't change depending on external factors. Okay. Staying true. Okay. We could go on. Now. Doing the right thing. The best definition of integrity I've ever heard was when today is one of my colleagues on the crossbenches in the House of Lords, Lord Williams. He's Master of Morden College, Cambridge. Mm-hmm. But he was Archbishop of Canterbury. And he came to visit the Zoroastrian Parsi Centre in Harrow in London. I'm patron of the Zoroastrian Parsi, my tiny community, for the for my community. And I made the welcome address as a patron to the Archbishop of Canterbury made my welcome address, I sat down, he made a speech. He said, Lord Villamoria has used the word integrity twice in his speech. He said the Zoroastrian Parsi community are renowned for their integrity. And the word integrity comes from the Latin and Greek words integer, integrum, that mean wholeness. You cannot practice integrity if you're fragmented in front of the light. You can only practice integrity as an individual if you're whole and complete. So values are absolutely key. And if you look at any rankings um, in the world, British universities, along with American universities, are the best in the world by far. Whatever way you look at it, three out of the top ten will always be British, sometimes four. Now, I just want to, before concluding, move on to the world that we're in. Today, the only... Certainty in the world is uncertainty. Who would have thought that in the spring of 2016, just three and a half years ago, Britain, the fastest growing economy in the Western world, would be where it is today, with the whole world saying, what is this great country doing to itself? We do not have a written constitution. We have no written constitution in Britain, it's an unwritten constitution. But our constitution depends on the balance of power between the government, parliament, and the judges. And Brexit has torn our three balancing powers tremendously. If you look at globalization, if I were to give you, show you a graph of globalization from 1815, after the Battle of Waterloo. Globalisation picked up, and if you, it peaked in 1900, just before the First World War. And if you look at that rise of globalisation, because the empires of the world were built. Then you have the First World War, which was a war that was completely unnecessary, by the way. Everyone, you look back at history, it's like watching a train crash in slow motion. Why did this war take place? Horrible war that killed millions of people. It should never have happened. Globalisation plummets. It picks up a bit, and the Second World War, caused by the First World War, globalization plummets again. And now you have a graph that goes off the First Second World War today, and globalization is ahead of where it was in the early 1900s. And if history repeats itself, we're seeing what we're seeing around the world with the rise in protectionism, the rise of inward-looking, as opposed to the globalization that we've um, experienced. So it's a very, very dangerous time for the world, and I just hope we nip it in the bud and we do not just go down the path of history repeating itself. And with Brexit, we all want to resolve Brexit, and it's become a case now where everyone is tired of it, and I call it, it's become the Nike Brexit. You know, Nike, the sports good brand, what's their slogan? Just do it. Come on, Parliament, just do it. Just do it. Just get it out of the way. If only for that simple of just doing it without damaging ourselves and our economy. And the change in the world is so dynamic today. Just stop and think, mobile phones, mobile phones, less than three decades, less than three decades. When did we start using mobile phones? Early 1990s. Cheap travel that allows people to go to any corner of the world now affordably has happened over the last three decades communications, internet, oh my gosh, we take it for granted just 20 years. Smartphones, it's barely a decade, and we can't live without them now. This is the change that is taking place so fast. One of our close friends in India, his company, just a few years ago, he was one of the top, in, in top business magazines around the world, would write about him, the biggest manufacturer of DVDs and CDs in the world. Ten years ago, ten years ago, top of the world. Today, business does not exist. Gone bust. So if you don't keep up with the change, you get left behind, and I think it's very, very dangerous. And statistics, beware of statistics. They so say on average this, on average that. An Indian economist once told me, if if, if you have one foot on hot coals and the other foot on cold ice on average you're comfortable <laughs> yeah. so be careful with statistics as well um, the UK I'm proud to say as a country has done phenomenally well The, the UK's, um, I think from the time I went there in the 1980s I was told by my family and friends if you decide to stay on and work in the UK after you finish your studies you will never get to the top you will not be allowed to get to the top as a foreigner there will be a glass ceiling for you. And I'm ashamed to say that they were right 30 years ago. Today they would be wrong. Today anyone can get anywhere in the UK, regardless of race, religion, or background. And the proof of it is in the pudding. In our cabinet now, our Home Secretary is Indian. Our Chancellor of the Exchequer, our finance minister, is of Pakistani origin. And there are two other Indians in the cabinet. And it's not long before there will be a nation who will become prime minister of the United Kingdom. So I think it's wonderful with the change that has taken place and the entrepreneurship that is being encouraged regardless of political party, Labour, Conservative, Liberal, <coughs> Coalition, they all support entrepreneurship and that will be fantastic for the future of this country. So i conclude with this. Teaching universities is also about leadership. It's also about brands. This brand, this Birmingham brand, is a very powerful brand. Never take a brand for granted. And this is to anything. It can apply to Dubai as a brand. Dubai is a brand. And at Molson Close, my joint venture partners, they have six ways of categorizing an extraordinary brand. One, it should be based on an undeniable brand truth, the brand truth of Birmingham, what I've been talking about, what education is all about. An extraordinary brand should have an iconic, instantly iconic and recognizable look the University of Birmingham. An extraordinary brand should never compromise on its principles. It should provide a consistent and relevant experience. We can't have one good year of doing good teaching and another good year of not consistent relevant. An extraordinary brand builds loyal brand champions. So once you're a member of the brand, Birmingham family, you are champions for Birmingham. Once you've been in Dubai, you're champions for Dubai forever and an extraordinary brand delivers extraordinary profits. <coughs> Not a dirty word. You've got to deliver good results at the end of it. So I, I, I finish with this. I started off by telling you a story about a president of India. I joined the House of Lords, and one of my colleagues is Lord Martin Rees, who was the astronomer Royal, at that time Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, one of the most brilliant minds in the world. And he was president of the Royal Society. As a scientist, if you get the letters F-R-S after your name, you've made it. It's the ultimate. And to be president of the Royal Society is just wow. So, Karen, I need your help. I'm giving the King Charles Medal, which has only been given once before to the Emperor of Japan. It can only be given to a head of state, or a former head of state, who's a scientist. And we're going to give it to President Abdul Kalam of India, who's just retired as the President of India. So, would you just be there while we're showing the President around, hosting him, and present the medal? So, they'd laid out some of the exhibits from the archives, including Isaac Newton's papers. Isaac Newton is a former President of the Royal Society. And while we're going around all these treasures, and I'd met the President many times before, and just in conversation, entourage is going around, I said, Mr. President, where did it all start for you? He stopped. Whole entourage stopped. He said, Karan, it started for me at the age of eleven. And then he told us a story. At the age of eleven, he was in a very poor family. And I told the first story was in Kerala, in the southwest <coughs> tip of India. He was on the southeast tip of India in a little island called Rameshwaram in between India and Sri Lanka. I've been there. He said. My teacher at my school at the age of 11, he said he drew on the blackboard the picture of a bird, and he explained the concept of flight to us, and he said I was mesmerized. I just wanted to know more about flight, I wanted to know more about science, I wanted to know more about physics, and I, and I, and I became a scientist. And he said it all started with that one teacher, he then went on to become a space scientist, a rocket scientist headed India space program, became chief scientific advisor to the government of India, and became India's most popular president in history. And it started with one teacher. That is the power of what we're doing over here, the power of universities to power the world.